There are some things you never forget. Last week I told you that people forget 90% of what they hear, uh, but there are some things that you never forget. And I will never forget my trip to Niagara Falls. How many of you have been to Niagara Falls? Uh, Niagara Falls, it's an incredible experience, and I'll never forget uh, my trip there. And uh, it was when I was in college, and one of my favorite things to do in college is we would go on road trips. Uh, any and I, every opportunity we had to go on a road trip, we'd jump in my friend's Suburban. We'd load as many people beyond legal limits into uh, his Suburban, more people than seatbelts. And uh, we would just drive. This was in the days uh, when gas was much cheaper than it is now, and you could do that without taking out a second mortgage on your home. Um, but we would jump in the car and we would just drive. And on this particular spring break, uh, we drove all throughout the northeastern United States. We visited 17 states plus Canada in six days. It was a whirlwind of a trip. And one of our many stops along the ways was, was Niagara Falls. And Niagara Falls is a truly overwhelming experience. I can remember standing there and you can feel the reverberations of the water. Uh, if you stand in just the right spot and the wind is in the right direction, you can feel the mist of the water. And it's like Niagara Falls is enveloping you as you stand there. It can be an overwhelmingly powerful experience. And I'm sure that most of you in this room, you've had something like that. Maybe you've gone to the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls or uh, you've traveled around the world. Maybe you've been to Israel. And by the way, I don't know if you've heard, but we're going in February 2023 to Israel. It'll be a great trip, an overwhelmingly amazing trip. And you're gonna get tired of me telling you about how incredible this trip is gonna be. But um, I'm sure most of you have had an experience like that that was just overwhelming. Maybe even life-changing. And in our passage today, in Isaiah chapter 6, we are invited to peer into this vision, this overwhelming vision that Isaiah the prophet receives early in his ministry where he sees the Lord high and lifted up. And this will prove to be an unforgettable, life-changing, motivating experience for Isaiah. As you're turning to Isaiah chapter 6, I want to tell you that this is really the first sermon in this new series, this Exalt series. And I've told you before that the the vision that I have, that we have for Grace Bible Church, for you in this room, is that when you stand before the Lord, uh, you will hear Jesus say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. And our mission to help you prepare for that day is equip, engage, and exalt. We are going to equip you with the truth of God's word so that you go out and engage people with the goodness, with the gospel, and we come together week in and week out and exalt God for who he is and what he's been doing. We, just a few weeks ago, finished that Engage series where I hope you have this uh, renewed motivation to go take the gospel to people, to your neighbors, your family members, your coworkers. And today we begin this series of exalting God for who he is and what he's doing. This sermon is meant to kind of bridge the gap between those two ideas. And there in Isaiah chapter 6, you can see uh, I broke down our passage this morning into three major parts. Number one, we're going to take a look at this vision Isaiah gets of God's holiness. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. An overwhelming vision, a life-changing vision. For Isaiah. Then, number two on your outline, we're going to see how Isaiah responds to this vision. 
When he's confronted with the reality of God's holiness, how is it that Isaiah responds to that? And then number three on your outline, we're going to see Isaiah commissioned to go and communicate this idea to his own people. So again, as you're turning to Isaiah chapter 6, I do want to share with you just a little bit of background because um, uh, it's important for us to understand the context and the people, the culture into which Isaiah the prophet is ministering. Um, There's a lot going on in the background of the book of Isaiah. Uh, By this time, uh, the, the, the nation of Israel has been split into two kingdoms. You have Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And uh, the major world empire, the major world power at this time are the Assyrians. And the Assyrians are sweeping through the world and they are taking everybody by force. And the Assyrians, we know if you go to the British Museum, they were a brutal people. There are depictions in the British Museum of the Assyrians and the things that they would do to people. They would burn them alive. They would skin them alive. They would impale them. They would do horrible things to people. And this is what it was like uh, to endure the wrath of the Assyrians. And uh, around this time, Assyria is going to come in and they're going to exile and destroy that northern kingdom of Israel. And Isaiah, the prophet, Much of his message is written to the people of Judah, that southern kingdom. He's warning them that judgment is coming to them as well. Now, their judgment is going to come by the next major world power, the Babylonians. But all of this is kind of spinning in the background. And uh, in, in the book of Isaiah, we read why. Why would God allow these terrible things to come upon the people of Israel and upon the people of Judah? In Isaiah chapter 2, We're told that idols have filled the land. Idols have filled the land. People have turned their backs on their worship of the one true God. In chapter 5, Isaiah the prophet spells out a series of five woes or five statements of coming judgment on the people because of their idolatry, because of their sin. And then that brings us now to chapter 6. Chapter 6 is really kind of the the beginning point of Isaiah's ministry. Isaiah chapter 6, notice verse 1. He tells us, in the year of King Uzziah's death. Now we have to pause right here because most of us don't know who King King Uzziah is. Um, King Uzziah was actually one of the good kings of that southern kingdom of Judah. He was, for the most part, a good king, but unfortunately, he's one of those kings who doesn't end well. He doesn't end well, and in the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 26, and I know you probably read that in your devotional reading this morning, but um, let me just remind you of what happens in 2 Chronicles 26. Um, King Uzziah, he does something that no king is supposed to do, no person is supposed to do other than the priest. King Uzziah enters into the temple, and he offers incense. Again, this wasn't his job. This wasn't his role. And so 2 Chronicles tells us that as a form of discipline for this ungodly worship, King Uzziah is struck with leprosy. He enters into the temple, he offers this incense, and he's struck with leprosy, and he lives until a leper until the day of his death. He's cut off from the house of the Lord. 
So again, the picture that I'm painting, the depressing outlook in our message this morning is that things are not going well. Things are not going well for the northern kingdom of Israel. Things are not going well for the southern kingdom of Judah. Things are not going well for King Uzziah. And Isaiah tells us in verse 1, it was in the year of King Uzziah's death, what happened? I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Isaiah is given this grand and glorious, overwhelming vision of God. And where is he in this vision? In the temple. King Uzziah was struck with leprosy and is going to die for entering into the temple and offering this incense offering. I would propose to you that Isaiah was a little bit nervous in this moment. He finds himself in this vision in the temple, surrounded by the presence of God, the holiness of God. And notice what he sees. He says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. God sees this overwhelming vision of God, and it says that God there is seated on his throne, this place of position and authority and power, describing God, picturing God as the Lord over all of creation. Notice his position there in the temple is lofty and exalted. It is a picture of his sovereignty. And then Isaiah sees in this vision the train of his robe is filling the temple. The idea here is that God is too big. He's too great. He's even beyond description. Isaiah sees this overwhelming vision of the glory of God and the holiness of God. And then notice as well, surrounding God in this vision. Verse 2, Isaiah sees seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, they covered their face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. These seraphim surrounding the very glory of God, the holiness of God there in this temple vision of Isaiah. They have six wings. With two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, with two he flew. These are angelic beings. And more, we don't know a lot about seraphim, by the way, uh, but more important than what exactly they are or exactly what they do or why they have six wings, the most important thing I want you to notice is what they say. Verse 3, it says, One called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Again, picture this in your mind. Peer through the eyes of Isaiah. This overwhelming vision of the holiness of God. The seraphim cry out, holy, holy, holy. And throughout the Old Testament, any time a word is repeated three times, it's primarily meant for emphasis. He's altogether holy. There is no one like him. His glory fills the earth. You know, holiness it's kind of a difficult concept for us to grasp because by definition, when we talk about God's holiness, by definition, it means he's set apart. 
he's uniquely different, that there is really none like him. And often the way we comprehend things is by making comparisons, right? So by definition, this is very hard for us to understand. What does it mean that God is holy? Because no one compares to him. There's nothing we can imagine in our mind that even comes close to this. This idea of holiness, it's a, it's a quality of God. It really describes his transcendent otherness, his apartness from all of creation, his uniqueness, his totality of purity. And the, the focal point of this vision is the holiness of God. And again, notice the contrast. Understanding the background of the book of Isaiah and all that's going on in the land of Israel and the land of Judah, it's filled with idol worship. It's filled with sin. And here Isaiah is given this vision of God in his temple and holiness fills the temple. It's this huge contrast between the reality of people and the reality of God, the reality of sinful man and the reality of a holy God. And as I try to peer into this passage and just imagine this overwhelming vision that Isaiah receives, it's it's hard to even comprehend. It's hard to imagine what it must have been for Isaiah in this moment. We get a little indication as we keep reading. Let's look at number two on your outline. Having been confronted with this vision of a holy God, how is it that Isaiah number two on your outline responds to this vision? Notice what he says, Isaiah chapter six, verse five. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Having been given this vision of a holy God, Isaiah's response is to immediately realize the depth of his own sin. Anytime in Scripture you see somebody encounter either God like here in Isaiah or even angelic being. This is the immediate response. I mentioned this to the men's Bible study on Wednesday mornings, but anytime I hear alleged stories of people going to heaven and coming back, I always get real suspicious when they describe what their experience was, kind of crawling up into Jesus's lap and and this kind of buddy-buddy idea with God because overwhelmingly in the scripture, when people are confronted with God, Uh, they are immediately overcome by the reality of their own sin. And Isaiah is immediately overwhelmed by the reality of his own sin, and he even confesses he lives among a people who are sinful as well. But notice what Isaiah says. He says there in verse 5 again, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Remember back in chapter 5, I told you that Isaiah proclaims a series of five woes. Five statements of judgment because of the sinfulness of his people. And here, having seen this vision of a holy God, Isaiah now proclaims a woe upon himself. I'm devastated. I'm ruined, he says. Being confronted with the holiness of God, Isaiah is immediately reminded of his own sinfulness. I love what W.A. Criswell said years ago about this passage, he said, the closer a man comes to God, 
the more sinful and unworthy he feels. The closer a person comes to God, the more sinful and unworthy he feels. But there is good news. As we keep reading, notice what happens in verses 6 and 7. Having understood and seen this vision of the holiness of God, having now been come to the realization of the depths of his own sinfulness, verses 6 and 7 says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture. Notice a few things here. It says, one of the seraphim flew over to Isaiah with this burning coal. And I believe, again, that this story is meant to be read with the experience of King Uzziah in the background. King Uzziah went into the temple and he offered this uh, incense offering in the altar of incense. And so I think the coal here that the seraphim takes is from the altar of incense. But regardless of where it comes from, what's more important is what he does with it. The seraphim flies over to Isaiah and touches his lips. And this is a picture, notice, of what is then proclaimed. Isaiah, having been confronted with the reality of a holy God and come to the realization of his own sinfulness, his uh, sinfulness, this gulf that exists between a holy God and sinful Isaiah, this gulf is now bridged as his sin is forgiven. Verse 7 again, your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Again, consider this. If you were to flip forward into the New Testament in the Gospel of John, John chapter 12, uh, the Gospel writer John tells us that this vision that Isaiah saw, he actually saw Jesus' glory. That the vision Isaiah saw here was actually one one of Jesus. And again, this is a a picture of forgiveness, right? That Isaiah's sin is forgiven. That this gulf, this chasm exists between a holy God and sinful man. And the only way to bridge that gap is through the forgiveness that we have in Christ. And so I'm going to ask you, like I ask you every week, here in person and online, have you considered the forgiveness that God is offering to you in Christ. We have to understand the reality of our own sin, the reality of our own sin, that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and God is a holy God. We don't deserve to be in his presence. There is no one like him. And yet the good news of the gospel is that God has bridged that gap by providing his son. And as a gift freely to you. We're given reconciliation, forgiveness, redemption. And if you've not considered Jesus, I'd invite you to do so right where you are. So here in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is given this vision of a holy God, he's reminded of his own sinfulness and the sinfulness of his people, his sin is then forgiven. And now, number three on your outline, what does Isaiah do? He's motivated now to go communicate this message to his own people. Notice Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. 
Isaiah says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Let's pause right here. Again, Isaiah has been confronted with this overwhelming vision of the holiness of God. He's been reminded of the depths of his own sin, which has now been forgiven. And now God asks this question, okay, who's going to go? Because the people of Israel and the people of Judah, they're still filled with idolatry. So who's going to go? Who's going to go proclaim this message to the people? And Isaiah, it's an amazing response. He says, here am I, send me. You've got to appreciate Isaiah's eagerness, his motivation to go tell people the good news of this, the reality of a holy God who will forgive people's sins, right? You got to love Isaiah's response here. And this is where in most sermons in Isaiah chapter six, the sermon ends. And an invitation is given to come and respond to the call of God on your life to become a missionary, to go to Africa or to go to Asia, uh, because there's people who need to hear, right? And that's absolutely true. But it's also a little bit deceiving because we need to finish the chapter. We need to finish the chapter. Isaiah responds Who's going to go? Who shall we send? And Isaiah says, Here I am, Lord, send me. I'll go. But then notice what God says next. He said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Isaiah says, God, I'll go, sign me up. I'm gonna go tell my people uh, that you're a holy God, that they're a sinful people, but that reconciliation is possible. Sign me up, here I am, I'll go. And God says, okay, uh, but here's the thing, Isaiah, they're not gonna listen. <laughs> Talk about a demotivating sermon, right? Um, God says, Isaiah, you're gonna keep on preaching, but the people aren't gonna listen. You're gonna keep on proclaiming this message, but the Ears are not going to hear. The eyes are not going to see. The hearts are just going to become harder and harder. It comes as a surprise to people sometimes uh, that these verses right here, verses 9 and 10 of Isaiah chapter 6, are some of the most quoted passages in Isaiah that we see in the New Testament. Again, these are not the most uplifting and encouraging verses, right? Um, but they're quoted a number of times in the New Testament. Again, John chapter 12 is one example. Uh, John quotes here Isaiah chapter 6 in these verses to describe why the religious leaders in Jesus' day continually reject him. And the New Testament writers seem to look back here to Isaiah chapter 6 as a, a way of understanding why the more they preached Jesus, the less people responded, <laughs> The more they called people to repentance, the harder their hearts became. And this isn't, you know, the uplifting post-Easter, go get them sermon maybe you were expecting, but this is reality, right? Isaiah's commissioned to go send, uh, to go communicate this message to people, and God says, Isaiah, nobody's going to listen to you. And so he asks 
the logical question that all of us would ask in verse 11. Having heard that his ministry is going to be at least quantitatively a colossal failure, verse 11, Isaiah says, Lord, how long? (laughs) Right? I mean, this is the question any of us would ask. If God came to you and said, listen, I'm going to send you to Africa or to Asia or to some place, you're going to be a missionary, but nobody's going to listen, you'd say, really? Uh, God, my I must be hard of hearing here. I think I heard you wrong. And, and Isaiah says, how long is this going to go on? And God answers verse 11, again, with not an encouraging message. He answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Houses are without people. The land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. God says, or Isaiah says, God, how long is this depressing ministry going to last? And God's response is, well, until everything is destroyed. Until Assyria comes in and wipes out the northern kingdom, until Babylonians come in and wipe out the southern kingdom, people aren't going to listen. This is why, by the way, most mission sermons end at verse (laughs) 8. No one wants to hear it. But there is a little bit of hope. Verse 13, God says, yet, there will be a tenth portion in it. But it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. God says, okay, Isaiah, there's a little bit of hope in this. A remnant of believers will remain. In the midst of this depressing message, in the midst of all of this devastation, there will be a tenth portion of people who remain. I remember somewhere, someone preaching a sermon about people forgetting 90% of what they hear, only remembering 10, right? Uh, 10's a good number here. Uh, But a tenth portion of the people uh, will remain, like a stump uh, of a, you know, giant swath of trees cut down, but the stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump, God tells Isaiah. So as we take a step back and and look at this message, again, I want you to notice the progression of thought. The progression of thought in this passage is really important. It begins with Isaiah's vision of a holy God. He's overwhelmed by this vision. He responds by realizing the depth of his own sin, which is then forgiven by God. And then he realizes as well that he lives among a people of unclean lips, a people who are also in need of God's forgiveness. And Isaiah is then sent to go proclaim this message to his people, even though they won't respond. There's a ton for us here. But to have a little fun, let me put this in perspective for you. What were you doing a year ago? Exactly one year ago today. Exactly one year ago today, I was here. And interviewing to be the next senior pastor at Grace Bible Church. And praise God that it worked out. I'm very happy it worked out. 
But what if, let me just propose this to you. This is totally hypothetical. Um, those theologians in the room, cessationists in the room, this is purely illustrative. What if um, I had had a vision from God that I was going to be the next senior pastor of Grace Bible Church? Fantastic. But then God said, the bad news, Jace, is nobody's going to listen. Right? You're going to preach, but no one's going to hear. Those one things you offer every week, nobody's going to do it. And I might have said, God, like I said, how long is this going to go on, right? <laughs> um, and God said, well, until the doors of Grace Bible Church are closed forever. Man, that's not really what I'd want, right? I'm not sure I would have accepted the call. Or for you, listen, we just finished this series, this engaged series, where hopefully you're motivated to go share this message of the gospel of Jesus with your friends, with your neighbors, with your coworkers, with your family members who don't know Jesus. But there's no guarantee of results. One of the very important lessons we see here in Isaiah chapter 6 is that if you're motivated by your circumstances, if you're motivated by the people who may or may not respond to your message, you're going to fail. If you define success the way the world defines success, you're set up for failure before the get-go. The driving motivation for everything we do the driving motivation to share the gospel and the goodness of who God is and the, the glory of Jesus is not our circumstances, it's God's holiness. Why is it that Isaiah would proclaim this message even though nobody would listen? Why is it we should go out into the streets and the neighborhoods of Dallas, Texas and proclaim this message regardless of the response? Because he is worthy, because he is holy, because he is risen. People must know both the holiness of God and the forgiveness of God. And the people of Israel and Judah were filled with idolatry. And Dallas is filled with idolatry. One of the great principles in Scripture that we see regarding idolatry is you become like what you worship. You become like what you worship. There's a great psalm, Psalm 115. Don't turn there, look it up later. But you see the exact same language in Psalm 115. Uh, the psalmist describes idols who have ears but do not hear, mouths but do not talk. And then he says in verse 8, those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. You become like what you worship. So if you worship the idol of money, then you will be driven and motivated by money. If you worship at the idol of fame, then you will be driven and motivated by fame. If you worship the God of pleasure, then you will be driven and motivated by pleasure. But if you worship the one true God, the living God, the holy God, then he is what motivates you, not any circumstances. And listen, outside of these walls, there's a world of people who are worshiping idols, and for you and I, before we can really go engage them, we first have to, have to come to terms with the reality of our own sin. And that's what I want you to do this week. The one thing I'm asking you to do 
as a response here in Isaiah chapter six is I want you to ask the Lord to reveal those areas in your life that are hindering you in your ability to exalt God, to properly worship him. And I want you to ask God to cleanse you, and he will, I promise you, he'll cleanse you of whatever is holding you back from this pure exaltation of him. And that's my ask of you this week. And that we can use then the holiness of God and the forgiveness that we have in him, uh, not only to share this message with other people, but then to come week in and week out and praise him, exalt him for what he's been doing through you throughout the week. Again, there are some things that you never forget, and I guarantee you Isaiah never forgot this vision here. There are some things you never forget. I'll never forget my trip to Niagara Falls. There's a very important detail in my trip to Niagara Falls that I didn't tell you earlier. And that is on that college road trip to Niagara Falls, we arrived in the dead of night. It was pitch black outside. There were no lights on. And so even though I've stood at Niagara Falls, even though I've felt the reverberations of Niagara Falls, even though I've been wet by the midst of Niagara Falls, I've never actually seen Niagara Falls. Um, This is like a pattern in my life. All these places I want to go, I never actually get to see it. Um, But here's my point. You've never seen with your own eyes this vision that Isaiah received. We don't know what it is to be caught up into heaven and get this grand and glorious vision of a holy God, but that doesn't mean that you can't be impacted by it, that your life can't be changed because of what Isaiah saw. Again, why would somebody like Isaiah (laughs) preach a message that won't be successful? Why would you go out into Dallas and preach a message that may, may or may not be responded to? Because God is holy. Because he he is worthy. There's no one that compares to him because he is risen. And Isaiah chapter 6 is an invitation for you and I to peer in through Isaiah's eyes and to see the thing that motivates us for proper worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this vision of Isaiah. This picture of the magnitude of who you are. And God, I pray that as we hopefully get just a a bit clearer of a picture of your holiness, of your majesty, of your supremacy, God, I pray that we would realize as well the depth of our own sin. That there is a massive gulf between who you are and who we are. I pray that as we realize this and contemplate it more and more, that you'd give us a deeper appreciation for the forgiveness and reconciliation we have to you through Jesus. I pray that you would use it to motivate us to go out to our friends, our loved ones, our neighbors, and to share this message with those who were desperate to hear it. And God, as I pray that, that, that regardless of the response, that you would be magnified that you would be glorified. I do pray that people would respond in faith. They would come to see the love and the mercy you have freely given to them. But God, above all, I pray that we would be driven primarily by your glory, by your holiness, 
no matter what. I ask this for myself and for each one here, and I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.